0: The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the May 2015 podcast. This month, new research indicates that cold weather is more dangerous than hot.
1: It looks like cold weather can kill 20 times as many people as a hot weather.
0: Mathematical modelling of a pandemic.
2: I think it does surprise the public that there is math related to an outbreak.
3: And how Viagra may prevent malaria. When we raise the cyclic AMP levels due to knocking out that gene, instead of becoming bendy, they, they become stiff.
0: According to a new study in The Lancet, cold weather kills 20 times as many people as hot weather. The international study analysed over 74 million deaths across 13 countries, and it also reveals that deaths due to moderately hot or cold weather substantially exceed those resulting from extreme heat waves or cold spells. Lead author, Dr Antonio Gasparini, told us more.
1: This study found two very important results, and uh, what we found consistently across population was that Cold represents much more important predictor of mortality if compared to heat and just to uh, provide some quantitative estimates it looks like cold uh, weather can kill 20 times as many people as a hot weather. This was the first important result. The other important result of this study Oh, it was about the comparison uh, between what we call extreme temperature, meaning temperature days in which temperature is very high or very low, if compared to temperature is uh, days in which temperature is non-optimal but is a mild cold or mild hot temperature. And the surprising results is that actually most of the death attributable and overall to temperature actually occur in or are due to mild cold days. And also for heat, we found that approximately on average across the whole, all countries and all populations, approximately 50% of the mortality attributed to heat is actually attributed to mildly hot days. The first reason these results is important is that so far, most of the research and also the related public health policies have instead focused on very extreme events and in particular, extremely high days, meaning heat wave days.
2: It's very interesting because it it makes sense to think that the extreme weather would be more dangerous to you. So can you explain why it is the 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 mild temperatures that are more dangerous than extreme.
1: Yes, although these results appear counterintuitive and also conflicting with previous evidence, I don't think this is so. The first reason is that uh, is uh, about the measure we chose for reporting the outcome which is attributable mortality and not just uh, the pure risk of mortality. And in fact, consistently with all the previous evidence, we found that in extremely cold and extremely hot days, the risk of mortality is higher. The fact is, these days are rare. Most of the days are just mildly cold or mildly hot. And just because these days are uh, much more frequent, Although they produce, they are responsible for a lower number of deaths, each of them. The sum, the overall burden, is much higher during these days.
2: How do you determine whether a death was caused or influenced by the weather or or by suboptimal weather?
1: We have applied quite complex statistical methods and these, these are based on regression models which are able to account for the effects of other predictors meaning a seasonal effect unrelated to temperature or for example different mortality baselines occurring in different days of the week or the effect of other predictors just like air pollution or humidity. From this model we say that the estimate of the association between temperature and mortality is controlled by many other factors and many other predictors which could potentially bias the estimation. Uh, So we are fairly confident, of course this is an observational study, so we cannot rule out uh, biases in the analysis, but we are fairly confident that we are able to estimate the association while accounting for many potential confounders in our regression model.
4: So, taking
2: all of this into consideration and putting it into practical use, what are the implications for public health planning in all of these different countries? I
1: think there are two results which are very important to consider Mm -hmm. when planning interventions or policies to prevent non-optimal temperature-related deaths. The first one is that the impact of cold appears to be actually much higher, while in fact, so far, most of the attention and the public health policies have only focused on very extreme hot days. The second one is exactly that we are just looking at what happens in what we call high-risk days, that is heat-waves days, while the burden, meaning the total number of deaths attributed to heat and cold, most of them can actually occur outside days which are not matching this definition. So in It was not the purpose of this epidemiological study, it was not the purpose of this study to identify specific policies or to tell public health experts or practitioners how to change these policies. The main message is that these results should be considered in order to recalibrate, refocus, or extend existing Policies Because the idea is that even if these, the, the current policies aiming at heatwave days are very effective, they are able to prevent just a minor part of the total burden of deaths due to non-optimal temperature.
0: That was Dr. Antonio Gasparini. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. A new treatment to prevent the transmission of malaria parasites from humans to mosquitoes and thereby preventing further spread within the population could be possible thanks to the stiffening powers of Viagra. Study co-author David Baker, professor of malaria parasite biology at the school, told us more about the
3: findings, which are published in PLOS Pathogens. The malaria parasite life cycle is very complex, involving stages in the human and also the mosquito vector. So these distinct stages we like to understand what makes them go on to the next stage really.
5: So tell me a little bit about the malaria parasites, about the life cycle that you were trying to understand and target.
3: In humans the problems caused by malaria, all the symptoms and pathology are caused by quickly replicating forms and they invade red blood cells and as they grow over 48 hours, they rupture and burst out up to 20 or 30 new malaria parasites which invade red cells. So you can imagine as those parasites expand, you know, you become anemic and that's often associated with severe malaria. So those are one type of malaria parasite. Now for reasons we don't understand very well, some of those malaria parasites, when they invade red blood cells, turn into sexual forms, male and female gametocytes we call them. We call them that because they're the precursors of gametes because when they get into the mosquito, the male and females fertilize to continue the cycle. So those gametocytes, um, they don't divide in the human, uh, they simply mature over about two weeks. These sexual forms as male and female malaria parasites they get quite large and crescent shapes, and normally if a, a red blood cell becomes misshapen like that, it would be filtered out by this, our spleen in our body. They need to hide in the body to stop being cleared by the immune system and the spleen. And they do that when they're very young. Uh, they go into the bone marrow and hide. And it's only when they mature that they become uh, flexible and they enter the circulation. And once they're flexible, they're safe from the spleen because they can squeeze through the capillaries in the spleen and circulate throughout the body. So when the mosquito takes a blood meal, it will take up some of these gametes sites so that the gametes can fertilise inside the mosquito and continue the cycle. And so what we wanted to understand was exactly how it becomes flexible. So we focused on a particular signaling molecule called cyclic AMP. And we wanted to ask the question, Does cyclic AMP make these sexual cells, these males and females, become flexible to allow them to circulate in the bloodstream?
5: So how did you go about investigating that? How does a molecule, cyclic AMP, how does that change the shape of these parasite cells?
3: Right, I mean, that that is a very good question, and really it's a next step for us to understand the mechanism, how it happened. But the first step was just to ask whether it happened or not. So we used two ways um, in the lab to find out whether increased levels of cyclic AMP made these sexual cells become flexible. So one approach we took in my lab, uh, we knocked out a gene encoding an enzyme called a phosphodiesterase in the malaria parasite. Once we, Normally phosphodiesterase enzymes degrade the cyclic AMP signal so when we deleted the gene the levels of cyclic AMP went up as we would have predicted and so lo and behold when we knocked out this gene the gamete sites became less flexible.
5: So normally low levels of cyclic AMP is keeping them bendy and when it rises up they become stiff and rigid?
3: That's right. I mean, that was the problem. When we raised the cyclic AMP levels due to knocking out that gene, instead of becoming bendy, they, they became stiff, essentially. And the other way we raised the cyclic AMP levels was to use small molecule inhibitors of phosphodiesterases. So we used several, and one of the ones we used was Viagra. Now, that's quite a well-known inhibitor of phosphodiesterases that's um, used to treat male erectile dysfunction. And so here we had a situation where by increasing cyclic AMP levels with Viagra, we could make these sexual cells, malaria parasites become stiff as well. In a human, if that happened, if those mature gamete sites became stiff, they'd be filtered by the spleen and inactivated, and you wouldn't get any transmission.
5: Were you surprised when you discovered this, and particularly when you discovered that uh, such a well-known drug as Viagra might potentially have this effect?
3: Once we knew that cyclic AMP did have an effect, on sites rigidity or stiffness, then we almost could have predicted it really. But this followed on from um, some work done earlier by the, the lead on the study, Catherine Lavasek and Gordon Langsley in Paris. They'd shown previously that the stiffness properties of sites were very important in, in them being um, hidden in the body. So what we didn't know at the time was that cyclic AMP would play a role. So that was the surprise, that cyclic A&P did play a role. Uh, but once we knew that, it seemed logical to us that Viagra might well play a role.
5: And was there a little bit of sniggering in the lab when he sort of realised that uh, what was going on?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, You know, always when we mention we're working with Viagra in the lab, uh, people sort of have, have the odd snigger, so uh, absolutely. And uh, Catherine came up with the... Good headline that it made gametocytes stiff. So, yes.
5: Is there any evidence from people who've taken Viagra that it has any influence on their malaria?
3: Well, I don't think that has been measured. It would be very interesting to look at that. Um, but um, absolutely, it would be nice to find out if we if we could test that. But, uh, uh, to, to my knowledge, um, that that hasn't been tested.
5: So discovering that these small molecule drugs can raise cyclic AMP levels, can make the, the parasite forms stiff so they get mopped up in the spleen. Obviously, Viagra is a drug that does this, but it does have certain side effects Indeed. that you might not want as a malaria Absolutely. treatment. So how can, you, how can you try and get the, the malaria-destroying effect without the um, libido-raising effect?
3: Yeah, Well, that is our key question that's before us. And um, what we need to do is to get new inhibitors... That specifically recognise the malaria phosphodiesterase enzyme and have much less activity on the human one. So that's our next step, and so I'm getting together with chemists um, to try and do exactly that.
0: That was Professor David Baker. In today's globally connected world, infectious diseases spread more easily than ever. Erin Lafferty and Albert von Hoek will be exploring how we can predict and trace the spread of diseases at the Cheltenham Science Festival on June 6th. And they told us more about their talk, Can We Predict Pandemics?
2: There's going to be a lot of interactive elements and that's one thing that's really important to build into public engagement and science communication events is not just telling people but having them engage in it. So we're sort of going to have a mini disease outbreak that they can engage in and see how the disease can spread person to person and things like that.
4: Not an actual disease No, outbreak.
2: no, no. Not an actual disease. A, a demonstration of how a disease could spread. How do you do that? Um, well we're doing you could do it with many different ways, but we are doing it with small balls that will be tossed around the room and when people catch them or touch the different balls that they're considered infected, and so that will show how it spreads.
4: Is that an important thing to kind of put the, the fun into a pandemic? Because these are kind of quite serious things that we're talking about.
6: It's important to um, find ways, like uh, non-dangerous ways, to explain dynamic systems. I think it's it's a good way to engage with the public, like say, okay, these are dynamic systems they happen with infectious diseases and they are not there are mathematical uh, systems they work that's how biology works and that's not only diseases work like this but also if you for example spread balls like this like it's a way to engage the public in saying okay this kind of system happening in biology these are normal patterns and the same patterns help happen also for infectious diseases and because we know how these systems work, we can also predict how these uh, diseases might
4: spread and what the impact might be
6: for certain interventions.
4: Do different diseases have different models for how they spread?
6: Yes, so you could say that the model system is similar, but the particular diseases are different. So the infectious period is different, how infectious they are, are different. like these disease parameters are different between different diseases and that's why they behave different, like the model gets different outcomes.
4: And each time there's a, there's a new outbreak, does that help modify the model and make it more accurate?
6: Yes, so the more data you gather from the same disease, the better you can parameterize your model, like you can improve the model outcomes. But an outbreak of, for example, SARS or uh, Ebola cannot inform the model for influenza so much. Like, uh, because the disease parameters are different, so it's not always that the more outbreaks you have, the better.
4: With, with things like new outbreaks of new diseases, is it possible to predict how the disease will will spread if you haven't had that outbreak of that particular disease before? Can you look at other data?
2: Uh, you can. You can definitely look at other data. It's something like so. SARS is a great example of it was a brand new disease which we knew nothing about and sort of learned very quickly and learned on the fly. So you can look at other models. So you can say maybe SARS is behaving like this. So it, may be, it might be behaving like influenza because it's a respiratory virus. Or it might be behaving like another virus because it seems to have this mortality rate or things like that. But equally with a new outbreak like that, you are changing the model very frequently. So you're always updating it to the current data and trying to get, trying to get data as quickly as possible to make the model better.
4: But you, you talked about parameters and, and there must be more and more parameters kind of occurring. You, you're also dealing with human nature. Is that one of the biggest challenges, kind of tr- just to trying to deal with a multi-parameter space?
6: Yes, the, the challenge is, I think there's twofold, like, because in the end you want to keep your model as simple as possible. So it's trying to minimize the parameter space, but then still be specific enough for the given disease, that you're not too naive. And I think that's that's the problem for any scientist or any modeler in that sense, that you Try to balance this right, um, and for new diseases, yeah, you do not know up front how complex you sh- your models should be, um, and how what kind of data you can collect quick enough to inform your parameters.
2: Picking up from what AJ said, is you yes yeah, you, you run a model that creates all these different scenarios, and ultimately you want to match it back to the data that you see. So you want to see does the model fit the data, and if it doesn't fit the data, then something's wrong in the model, and you have to go back and change something in the model. So you you. You fit the model to current data and then can use it to predict future
4: trends. We just had the general election and all the polls were wrong. They're all to do with modelling and data and predictions. Do you ever find something similar with what you're doing with your modelling? Do you ever find that a model, it just seems completely wrong and you want to reject it, but actually the data was bad?
2: I I think one thing modelers always have to remember is that a model is only as good as its data. So especially with a new disease, as we get in new data, we need to constantly be re-evaluating the model, and the model is also only as good as the assumptions you put into it as well.
4: I think there was a statistician who once said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Exactly. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about the Centre for Mathematical Modelling at the school?
2: Sure. So the Centre for Mathematical Modelling of Infectious Diseases is a cross-faculty centre within the London School, and our goal is basically to use mathematics to understand and predict the epidemiology of infectious diseases um, in terms of how they're going to spread in a population and how effective uh, control measures might be. So researchers in our group look at things like Ebola and HIV and TB and influenza and measles and many many other diseases that we um, apply in mathematics to understanding how they spread.
4: Where does mathematical modeling start in disease spreading and prevention did it go all the way back to year dot in epidemiology
6: no I think we came quite late to the scene like the infectious the mathematical model is in the sense of dynamic modeling the earliest models were very very early with smallpox but then it was only uh, Daniel bernouilli and the French mathematician who once used a mathematical model to describe this transmission of smallpox and then there was a whole time of nothing and I think it became really popular during the 70s again.
4: When, when you're doing your, your outreach work, do you find that the public are surprised that there's even a discipline which uses mathematics in disease prediction?
2: Absolutely. I think, I think it does surprise the public that there's math related to an outbreak because we think a lot, you know, we see pictures in the media of... Uh, you know, field epidemiologists wearing the full protective suits and we see scientists in the lab working on creating vaccines and creating treatments and we see um, announcements from the WHO and things like that but we don't actually think that maths might be involved and that's one of the things we like to bring across when we do these outreach events is that mathematical modelling is really an integral part of disease outbreak analysis and understanding and that it's a, a, kind of a really interesting and exciting part of it as well.
4: And tell us one more time about the, the Cheltenham Festival.
2: Um, so the Cheltenham Science Festival is from June 2nd to 7th this year. And our event is on Saturday, June 6th at 10.15am. And if you go on the Cheltenham Science Festival's website, um, you can buy tickets. They're only £8. And our talk is titled, Can We Predict Pandemics?
0: That was Erin Lafferty and Albert von Hoek. And you can hear an extended version of that and all our interviews by visiting the school's webpage at lshtm.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.